Infectious diseases is likely to become a critically important field in medicine over the next 30 years. There are already reports that global warming and climate change are likely to result in increases in infectious diseases. Enter center stage, the current SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Furthermore, antimicrobial resistance is another concerning and very real global threat to humans, animals, and the environment, also termed the silent pandemic. So what does this mean for you as a clinician and for me as the microbiologist? The interface between clinicians and laboratory staff is where the two meet and work together to provide quality care to the patient. How effective this interface is depends on the interaction between the two. It means that we need to have a better relationship, essentially bridge the gap between the bench and the bedside. The importance of the interface between laboratory and clinician in the management of infectious diseases specifically cannot be overstated. Diagnostic tests requested by clinicians provide results required for antimicrobial therapy, infection control measures, outbreak detection, and so much more. In South Africa, as in many parts of the world, infectious diseases specialists are scarce. The responsibility of managing infections falls on the general physician or the general specialist. It is therefore fundamental that the interaction between the laboratory and the clinicians is strong. It's also important to remember that the contribution of a laboratory to clinical decision-making depends on both the performance of the laboratory itself and the behavior of clinicians with regards to test requests and using the results. On this, our first episode of Microbe Mail, we'll be talking about bridging the gap between the bench and the bedside with a focus on the laboratory cycle and clinical specimen submission. My guests today are Dr. Lyle Murray, an infectious diseases fellow at the Charlotte Matleke Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Dr. Cassandra Reddy. Cassie is a clinical microbiologist based at the Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. Hello to you both. Welcome to Microbe Mail, and thanks for joining me. Hi, Vin, and hi, Lyle, and also hi to all the listeners joining this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here today. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Vin. Uh, it's great to chat about these important things um, and also hi to all the listeners. Great. Before we get into our discussion, remember that you can receive email updates when we release an episode by signing up to our newsletter at www.microbemail.captivate.fm. You can also find us on Instagram or YouTube, and all the links that we've mentioned are available in the show notes. So let's get straight into it. Cassie, can you give us a brief description of the laboratory cycle, what it is, and what the components are? Yes, so um, the lab cycle is basically defined in three phases, the pre-analytical, the analytical, and the post-analytical phase. It's just a way to get some organization uh, into something that can lend itself to being chaotic. So basically the first step or the pre-analytical phase involves everything from the clinician deciding to take the sample to specimen labeling, transport, lab registration, and arrival at that lab for testing. Essentially it encompasses everything before the actual performance of the test. Then as follows, the analytical phase is the next phase. 
And that's when the test is actually being performed. It's basically which procedures are being done that give you the result. And finally, the lab cycle concludes with the post-analytical phase, which is basically everything that happens after the test is run, including resulting of that value in the lab system, as well as how the results are interpret interpreted clinically. Um, so in each of those components, there's certain factors that we need to consider, and in all components, the issues that might affect the quality of that final result. And that's why it's important to think about it in these different steps. Great, that was a really nice overall way to, to start it off, Cassie. So now, from a clinician's perspective though, what does the cycle mean in terms of making the diagnosis of an infection? So from the clinician, obviously we start off with a patient in front of us with a bunch of uh, symptoms and signs that we then use to formulate a, a, a preemptive diagnosis of what we think the problem is with the patient. But up to 70% of infectious diseases are reliant very much on the laboratory. So for us, uh, this pre-analytical phase would, would involve selecting the appropriate test, um, being able to take the appropriate samples, get it to the lab in an appropriate way in order to get the um, most accurate results that we can get. The, the analytical phase is, is mostly the, the realm of the microbiologist, but it's always good for us to have pre, uh, preliminary or, or um, unconfirmed results as soon as possible, especially if they are important for, for managing our, uh, the illness that we particularly are, are interested in. Um, it's always important to remember also that, um, unlike other diseases, infectious diseases not only is, involves the person being treated, but also involves the presence of a foreign living organism in that patient. And then, so when it comes to the, the post-analytical, it's about us being able to discuss those results with someone with uh, increased and, and expert knowledge in order to help us interpret those results and make the best decisions uh, for our patients in terms of treatment. Thanks, Lyle. So basically, when you're treating a patient with infection, you're treating two for the price of one, the human and the micro. Exactly. So to be honest, going through every detail of the laboratory cycle and how best we can bridge this gap will take us hours. But Microbe Mail is a bite-sized podcast. So in today's episode, we've chosen to focus just on the pre-analytical component so Cassie and Lyle, imagine you're both here in a boxing ring, the shape of a Petri dish, about to start this battle. Ready? Okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're actually here to bridge the gap, not break it, guys. So Cassie, I'm going to start with you. As a microbiologist, what do you wish clinicians knew about the pre-analytical aspect of the laboratory cycle? Essentially, what do you want from them when they decide to collect a specimen and submit it to the laboratory for a given test? So, then, in my opinion, there's quite a lot of information that would have a positive impact on the kind of result we can generate. Um, it's something that starts from something as simple as the lab request form, which are things that we've all seen lying around. Um, and you might get frustrated with all the little blocks that need to be ticked and all the information that's required, but each of those things is important to us on the lab side. So think of that lab request form like our clinical consult. We'd like to know things like which ward the patient is in, obviously the demographic details of the patient, what your suspected diagnosis is, when the specimen has been collected, the site of collection of the specimen is important in microbiology. And all of those things will inform either the way we process the sample 
or how we prioritize the sample or what we choose to follow up on that sample. It also impacts the way we report that result. So if we know it's not a well-collected sample, we might give you an interpretive comment telling you to use some clinical, clinical acumen in terms of um, analyzing or applying that result. So the specimen request form or the lab request form is really crucial. The next important thing is how the specimen was collected. So you might have had an indication from what I've said that different specimens are treated differently. Um, there are things that are not preferable. So pus swabs, for example, although they are very convenient and very easy to collect, often don't yield an accurate result um, and don't support the growth of all organisms equally. So although it's easy to get, it can often reflect superficial colonizers or things that are just lying on the top of wounds and not things that are actually causing the patient's problem. So an appropriate sample would obviously depend on the clinical context and what infection you're suspecting. Um, and for that, you could discuss with a microbiologist and most labs also have lab user handbooks where it gives you guidance on what to collect and where. But basically the main thing I want to emphasize today is that pus swabs are mostly not preferred. Um, the next thing is your contact details. Again, uh, this might seem like an annoying detail to you, but when we have a critical result, for example, a CSF that has a, a gram stain that's positive or a blood culture that's positive, having your contact details there ready to go just facilitates us giving that result to you so you can act on it faster. We all know that the longer um, the treatment of sepsis is delayed, the higher the mortality rate from sepsis. So the ultimate goal is to improve patient care and getting a critical result to you faster is one of the things we can do to affect patient care um, rapidly. Uh, in the absence of that, you might also be able to give the lab details and we get uh, the ward details so we can at least get hold of the ward. But ideally, if it was your information, uh, we can get hold of you so we can also get a clinical history to be able to facilitate patient management. Then things like medication and the diagnosis. So we'd, we'd want to know what medication the patient is on, because if your patient is on antibiotics, for example, it might affect the yield that we are getting from the culture of that sample. Um, it might also influence the things that we follow up if we know the patient has been exposed to antibiotics or not been exposed to antibiotics. So we would prefer it if you could give us at least some detail on whether the patient is receiving antibiotics. And as we've said, the diagnosis is important in terms of interpreting the results, deciding what to follow up and reporting of those results. The other thing to mention um, that is an issue in many um, settings such as ours is that if the specimen is a crucial specimen and we know transport is sometimes um, suboptimal, it's best to take the specimen to, your, to the lab yourself or to arrange someone reliable to get it to the lab as soon as possible. Like we've said, a key goal for us and for you is to improve patient care. And the quicker we can get the sample and start working on it, um, it reduces the chance of overgrowth of other bacteria. It also increases or reduces the time until you can get things like a gram stain. So ideally, if you can transport it yourself, we'll make sure that there's a way that it gets to us as soon as possible that will help in the grand scheme of things. So we know that that transport is not always doable. And if you are in a peripheral site where you don't have a lab on site, um, there might be a delay in getting these specimens to a referral uh, lab, a referral micro lab. 
And if there is significant delays in that transport, it's important for you to know um, that there are specific things that need to be done to the specimens. So if you have a CSF for a blood culture, those should not be placed in the fridge, but pretty much all other samples should be placed in the fridge at four degrees Celsius. And the reason for this is to stop the overgrowth of potentially colonizing bacteria. So we, when we receive the sample, what we culture is an appropriate representation of what was going on when the sample was collected, not when the sample was collected and has time um, to culture in transit, if we can put it that way. So the important message here is that for blood cultures and for CSFs, those should be kept at room temperature if there is a delay in transport. But for most other samples, such as urine, um, pus swabs, they can be uh, kept in the fridge at four degrees Celsius. Great, Cassie. That was a lovely um, kind of overall picture of that pre-analytical component. And I don't think clinicians often realize how important it is for us to know the medication and the diagnosis, um, and particularly antibiotics. I think people are not really familiar with how critical they are to uh, processing a sample in the laboratory. So Lyle, from the clinical perspective, I imagine that it would be you know, the world behind the laboratory doors is not just foreign, but also quite daunting to most clinicians. So what do you wish the microbiologist or the laboratorian knew or understood about the clinical aspects and the clinical challenges of specimen collection? Well, thanks, Vin, and thanks, Cassie. That's a great description of, of uh, ways we could kind of um, improve the way that we collect our specimens, label them, and, and give information to the microbiologist. Um, from from the clinician perspective, it's always well. What we would like uh, the microbiologist to understand is that sometimes getting an appropriate specimen is very difficult. Um, we often have restricted opportunities, i.e., sometimes in, in surgery there may be one opportunity to get um, a, an appropriate sample once the patient's been closed up and moved to to recovery. It, that opportunity is has is gone, and so that particular sample would need to be used for all the microbiological investigations that are required. Um, sometimes it's also just difficult, like with, for, for example, to get a lumbar puncture from a patient. There's obviously a lot of discomfort associated with that, and clinically and, and um, technically it can sometimes be difficult. So we don't always have um, opportunity to get the specimens when we need them, and so sometimes we need a lot of different investigations to be done on, on restricted samples. In terms of getting the appropriate clinical information on the request form to the microbiologist, there are times that it's just uh, quite difficult for the clinician to, to get all the information um, together. So often it's the, the specimens are being collected by junior clinicians, um, sometimes at the end of a long shift. Um, sometimes they just make simply just make mistakes. They forget to sign their name or they forget to label something correctly. Um, and also sometimes people are, putting the incorrect contact details on the form for a reason. So they may be going off shift and they want someone else to get the results or they put their seniors contact details on the form because otherwise it may get rejected because at some place, in some hospitals, there are restrictions in terms of which investigations can be requested. Um, so those are some of the reasons why someone may not put the correct details on. Also, uh, the diagnosis is not always written because sometimes we just don't know what the diagnosis is. Um, and to be honest, a lot of the clinicians are not really taught properly how to uh, to take appropriate 
bit specimens. And that's definitely something that we can work on along with the microbiologists and possibly with our infectious diseases colleagues is give um, junior staff particularly some guidance as to exactly how a particular samples should be collected. Um, obviously, any delays, be it with the transport of the sample to the lab or with the processing itself, um, affects how we can treat our patients. So the clinicians are obviously always, um, are always quite, uh, well, they always want the result as quick as possible. And they're always in a bit of a rush to get a preliminary result as quick as possible because this all has implications for treatment. So we also don't know um, sometimes how long to wait for a result. Um, as we said, these are the, the results are very important to our management and certain investigations take longer than others. So, and for some investigations, a preliminary result may be available. So it's always important for us to communicate um, between ourselves and, and the microbiologist when there are sometimes preliminary results or when for some reason um, a result may be delayed. Um, because as we said, that does affect treatment. And then the other thing would be um, just, well, the most frustrating thing for us is when, like we said, some of these difficult samples are sent in and that they get rejected um, for some other reason, most of the time for reasons we don't really understand. And so for that, we, we definitely like a bit more information from the microbiology side. So Cassie, can you give us a brief list of the reasons why a specimen might be rejected by the laboratory? Yes, so there is there are usually quite long lists of reasons for specimen rejection. And before I give you a few common ones, um, it's just important to say that most labs have their own list of rejection criteria. And it's a nice thing for you as clinicians just at least to go over so you're aware of, of why we do these things and what we can do to make sure that the sample you worked so hard to collect is not rejected. So one of the commoner reasons are if a specimen is not labeled or improperly labeled, it happens relatively frequently, unfortunately, that we get blood culture bottles with the wrong patient's details on, a different patient on the request form in the bottle. And that becomes a problem. I mean, if, because it's an important specimen, we should we would usually call that out and get someone to rectify that. But that creates extra work. And if we can't get hold of that person, that would mean rejection of those samples. Um, if the lab request form is improperly filled out, we should also be rejecting it. Uh, so basically, it's all of those things that we mentioned previously in the pre-analytical considerations. We need to know things like the patient, basic patient demographic details, where the patient is located, when the sample was collected, the site of the sample, and that will uh, reduce the rejection for those reasons. Um, and then if, if samples are received in containers that are either cracked or leaking or broken or not properly sealed, um, if we receive samples in that state, uh, we can't culture it because our culture will be reflective of what is in the specimen collection bag, which are often environmental contaminants and not necessarily what is reflective of what's happening in the patient. So to make sure we give you an appropriate result and a correct result, we can't culture that um, and give you a wrong result that you might act on. Additionally, uh, in this day and age, it's important to consider safety considerations or to have an, to bear in mind safety considerations. And those samples are a risk to our staff who, who are trained in how to deal with them, um, but we can't be exposing people along the way to unnecessary or unknown pathogens. So those are a few of the reasons. Another reason that might be important in low to middle income settings where healthcare facilities might be distributed 
is a delay in transport from specimen collection to receipt at a referral lab or a central lab where we do micro. If there's a prolonged delay in that transport, there is a good chance that there will be overgrowth of some normal flora components or that the specimen integrity will be compromised. And again, in the interest of quality and giving you an accurate result, we would reject that um, so you don't act on an inappropriate culture. So as I say, those are just a few examples that I've picked on now, but there are several um, and it's good to just review those. Okay, great. And also probably just to review your own personal laboratory guidelines because each laboratory will have a list of what they would and wouldn't project. Mm -hmm. um, and also just to just to mention on top of that, Cassie, is that sometimes a clinician might request a test that is not typically performed on a particular sample type. And if it's a critically ill patient or it's usually an unusual type of infection, um, before just submitting that sample to the laboratory, pick up the phone and speak to the microbiologist and see whether some arrangement can be made um, so that the sample doesn't, or pressure sample doesn't get rejected. So that was a brief overview of the pre-analytical phase of the laboratory cycle or the specimen collection and transport in diagnosis of infection. So Lyle, I'm going to go and ask you what solutions you'd like to see going forward to bridge the gap between the bench and the bedside. But before we do that, let's head over to our spotlight feature of the day. So get ready, Cassie, Lyle, we're playing microbe, true or false. You're up against each other and the stakes are very high because the winner gets a microbe named after them. <laughs> okay, you guys ready? ready? Yes. Awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out a fact about a microbe. If you know the answer, shout out your name, not the answer. If you shout out first, you'll get a chance to give your answer first. Um, if you're wrong, you know, it's only two options. So the, the alternative is the correct answer. Okay. So it's best out of three. Here we go. So your first fact is a bacterium can typically move about 100 times its body length in a second. Lyle. Cassie. Ah, I'll win first on that one. Lyle, what do you think? True or false? I would say false. It's actually true. Oh, they are super speedy. So apparently a, a, a good um, reference point would be a large fish which moves at about 10 times its body length. So, so this is 10 times as fast as, as a fast fish. So they are super fast. Sorry, Lyle, lost on that one. Don't worry, Lyle. Okay, I would have said false also. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're super fast. Okay, ready for the second one? Yes. Yep. The number of bacterial cells in the human body outnumber human cells by two to one. Cassie. Yes, Cassie. It's false. It is false. Do you know what the correct answer is? I want to say 10 to 1, but I could be wrong. I think it's 1 to 1. You are absolutely right. Cassie's actually right on this one, Lyle. It's 10 to 1. So we're outnumbered by bacterial cells in our body, 10 to 1. So there's more of them than there are of us. <laughs> and then the last one. So we've got 1 point to Cassie and 0 to Lyle. Yeah. Now. It's, a chance to, it's a chance to catch up here. <laughs> so here's the third fact. 
Ancient Egyptians used to put moldy bread on their wounds to treat them. I'll say Lazar Lao. <laughs> go for it, Lyle. Mm, that's a tough one. Should I give Lyle a chance on this one? Yes. <laughs> okay, go for it, Lyle. <laughs> I'll say uh, true. Absolutely right. It is true. There's an ancient Egyptian text that refers to this. So they didn't really know about it, but they accidentally stumbled across the principle behind penicillin. How amazing is that? So we're one-on-one -on -one here. So you, I suppose it's a tie. So each of you gets a microbe name. So Lyle. You'll have to be Lylococcus Murray-Dans. I like that. And Cassie, <laughs> <laughs> you. Cassie, you're going to have to be Cassandriella Redenosa. <laughs> I'm going to start signing things with that. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> okay. Back to the back to the topic at hand, though. Lyle, can you give us some tips or solutions by which you think you can bridge the bench bedside gap? Firstly, it would be nice to, uh, at least for our junior, junior staff, to be able to um, give them some teaching, some, some basic guidelines as to how to collect samples correctly. I mean, this can be done quite simply with like small uh, a leaflet of, um, that's easy to read, a few kind of steps as to how to do a basic blood culture, how to collect a midstream urine, uh, what type of sputum samples we should be collecting. I think that, that would be easy and just... And, and quite a simple thing to do because I think, like you said, some of this is already included in a in a handbook, but it's main, maybe not all that accessible to, to the clinicians. But more importantly, I think, would be for us to extend um, our ward rounds uh, to microbiologists. So the microbiologists, like we do some, we have done in the past, come and join us on some of the ward rounds in the ward and discuss the microbiological issues with each of the that with each of the patients in the ward. But also, almost more importantly, I think, because I think we generally know less about the lab environment than our microbiologists know about the ward, would be to bring clinicians to the lab and to show them some of the, the plates, to show them um, how the samples are analyzed and also just to, I can imagine showing people the number of um, CNSs that you're culturing um, and how much time that takes for, for the microbiological team and how basically improving taking samples, blood cultures, for example, would, would reduce all that kind of wasted effort, um, but just by, by taking samples correctly. So that, that those would be my suggestions. Those are great, Lyle. I definitely think the bench bedside ward round is an excellent idea. Cassie, any tips from your side? Uh, yes, Lyle, I thought there were fantastic suggestions as well. I agree with you completely. I mean, we've made reference to the fact that labs have handbooks, but they definitely can be made in a more user-friendly way because, after all, we want the users to actually access them. Um, but I think a key take-home message from all of this, for me at least, um, is about communication and communication is something that comes up in several contexts, but it's a it's a very easy way really to bridge the gap. Um, so in the past, I know the view of microbiologists and pathologists used to be that they were these people who didn't really understand clinical medicine, who were very happy to be tucked away somewhere in the hospital, not having clinical contact. But that is something that's changing rapidly. I mean, most most of the pathologists and the microbiologists that I know are enthusiastic and engaged individuals, and we actually want that clinical contact. The more clinical contact we have through you, uh, the better the results can be that we produce. So 
we can give you tailored advice. Um, it's also important to know what challenges you're having because there are things that we can do to address those or we can discuss solutions. Um, and of course, as Lyle has mentioned, sometimes we have preliminary results or things that we're working on um, that we can convey to you if we have an open communication line. So I think my take home message would be, don't be afraid of us, please contact us. Um, if there's anything that's either not making sense with the result or the result is taking too long or longer than expected, um, or anything really, advice on patients in terms of antimicrobial therapy, we are here and we would like to have the opportunity to assist you so we can work together um, and make the most out of this. Great, thanks. Thanks very much for that, Cassie. And thank you both once again for joining me. This conversation has been really insightful. I hope we'll be able to see you both again soon on Microbe Mail. I hope so too, Ben. And thank you for um, putting together something like this that's at least starting to bridge the gap between the lab and the clinicians. Yeah, thanks so much, Cassie and Vin. It's uh, really great to learn a little bit more about the world on the other side. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love to get your feedback via email or on social media. Or if you'd like to be a guest or suggest a guest, or even if you have just a topic suggestion, drop us an email at mail.microbe at gmail.com. Remember to spread kindness, not germs, so always wash your hands. This is Vin, your microbe messenger. I'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.